If you are visiting, I want to welcome you personally. My name's Jose, and I have the honor of serving as the lead pastor in We, Cypress Creek Church, or a group of imperfect people who are all on a journey to follow the only perfect one, and that's Jesus. So I hope that you feel welcome wherever you are in your faith journey. And this morning, we're going to continue through the book of Romans. We're in Romans 13. And if you know the Bible, you know that that has everyone's favorite subject ever, and that is politics and government. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? We're going to be talking about how Paul teaches us to relate to our governing authorities. And so can we all just take a deep breath? Yeah. See, we're going to talk about this, and it's going to go God's way through God's direction. But the cool thing about how Paul uh, uh, talks about it is he talks about it very clearly. That's what I hope to do through this message. And then he also uh, is, is very pointed at what the end game is. And we at Cypress Creek Church are about loving God, loving people, and making disciples. We call great what Jesus called the Great Commission and the Great Commandments. And last week, you heard from Patrick, our ministry partner in Zimbabwe. I hope that you enjoyed it as much as I. And I had a conversation with him, and I said, hey, Patrick, you have experience being from Zimbabwe relating to bad governing authorities. He, he, he told us how he fled Zimbabwe and actually came here to Wimberley, and, and we were able to help him in the early uh, thousands. My point is, I said, hey, do you want to preach Romans 13? I think it'd be really powerful. And he said, I have another message in my heart for the church. And I said, got it. What is it? And I just wanted to make sure he wasn't trying to get out of it. And he said, our identity in Christ, being ambassadors for God, being chosen, a chosen people. And, and, and as soon as I heard this, I thought, my goodness, only God could have prepared that because I, felt, I feel like it was the best preview for Romans 13, that we are appointed ambassadors, not elected, but appointed to represent the kingdom of heaven here on earth. And there's a couple of things that really resonated me that I just wanted to repeat because it ties in. He, he said that ambassadors represent uh, government in a foreign land. Uh, ambassadors have everything that they need provided for their home of origin, meaning that God provides everything that we need this side of heaven. It's all right here. And then he said that ambassadors can't be dual citizens. They can only be a citizen of the home that they've been sent from. And, and that really struck a chord in me because I came to this country at age six. I was born in Mexico City. And when I moved, I started having this identity crisis. Where am I from? See, when I would go to Mexico in the summers, family and friends, they were like, gringo, Macho, you left, so you're no longer from here. And then growing up in grade school here, it, you know, I didn't feel like I belonged. Fast forward, when I was 20, I got to spend a year in the Netherlands, and I actually got to work with an ambassador. Short story, the consul, when I lived in Miami, was now the ambassador from Mexico to the Netherlands. And so I got to work with him for, for a while. And, and he said, hey, do you want a job? And I said, are you kidding me? I'd love this experience. And, and so he asked me uh, one day, he said, hey, do you ever plan on becoming a U.S. citizen? And I said, hopefully. And he said, well, if you do, then you can't work with the Mexican embassy anymore. And I said, peace, see ya. And uh, I, I became an American citizen quickly thereafter. But y'all, my identity didn't solidify until I gave my life to Jesus as a freshman at Texas State University. That's when I felt 
known. That's finally when I became secure in who God made me to be. And I realized that my citizenship was in heaven and we're actually only temporary residents here on earth with a mission from our sender, from God to make disciples and and, and it ties in because that's where Paul is coming from. In Romans 12, he's talking about being transformed. He's talking about living a life that is set apart from the ways of the world. And in this case, he's saying, hey, I want you to relate this way to the governing authority so that you can stay on mission with what I'm giving you. All right. So we got some in the room that are like, man, I don't know. I like to just give it to them and and subvert. That means demean authority and power as much as I can. I know we're in here. So some of us are on this side of the spectrum. And then there's others of us, the rule followers, we're like, I don't want to bother anybody. I just want to submit at all costs. I I just want to stay quiet and and peaceful and just leave me alone and I'll leave you alone. Okay, so we got people on both ends this morning. I'm labeling this message subversive submission, because I believe that's the posture that Paul is teaching us to have. Here is why this is so important. The world operates in a top-down mode. So leaders are at the top, most significance. And, and then the lower we are on the totem pole, the less influence and significance that we have. Not so in the kingdom of God. I have here some strands of yeast that go from Luke chapter 13. Let's put that on the board. Luke chapter 13 teaches us how the kingdom of God works. Jesus said, what is the kingdom of God like? How can I illustrate it? It is like a tiny mustard seed that a man planted in a garden. It grows and becomes a tree and the birds make nests and branches. He also asked, what else is the kingdom of God like? It is like a yeast a woman used in making bread. And even though she put only a little yeast in three measures of flour, it permeated every part of the dough. These little strains that you can barely see are little seeds that grow in incredible influence in supernatural ways. Why am I talking about this? Because we're seeing it happen in this church right now with 10 baptisms celebrated on Thursday at Sewell Park through Crosstalk in Texas State, with these baptisms that we're celebrating today. These are kingdom strains of yeast that in God's timing and in God's way will protect, will feed, and and will provide for generations and generations. We want to live God's way, not top-down man's way. Subversive submission. Are we ready for Romans chapter 13? Oh, I don't know how I would like the sound of that. Are we ready to start Romans chapter 13? Okay, here we go. Romans 13 teaches us how to maintain a posture of subversive submission and answers the question, why? Why submit to governing authorities? Let's start in verse 1, where we have our first point. Let everyone, Paul writes, be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. That means that God establishes governing authorities. It's pretty clear. There's a few other verses that I want to read just to emphasize that this is true throughout Scripture. In Daniel chapter 2, he controls the course. He being God controls the course of world events. He removes kings and sets other kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge 
to the scholars. I, I think of this as that God is the ultimate chess player. And sometimes we want to know what is going on on the chessboard. But it really, it's not ours to know. It's just ours to do our part. God's the one that moves the king and the queen and the bishop and the, uh, what's the castle thing? Somebody give it to me. That one. And, and, you know, in specific places so that you can say checkmate. That's God's role. In Acts 17, Paul is actually talking to a, a very uh, uh, anti-Christ crowd in Athens, in the Oropagus, and he says that from one man, Acts 17, he created all the nations throughout the whole earth. He decided beforehand when they should rise and fall, and he determined their boundaries. His purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, though he is not far away from any of us, for in him we live and move and exist. Did you catch that? His purpose is for what? So that the nations could seek God and feel their way toward him. And so the, the, the country, the nations, the governing authorities are one of three institutions that God establishes here on earth. Out of the three, it's actually the least important. The most important one is our family. Mom, dad, children. And the second most important is this group right here, the body of Christ, where, where God chooses for in his mysterious uh, providence to move throughout the earth. And then there are governing authorities. There's government. It's really important that we keep these three in priority. Family most important, church second, and country Third, because again, God is going to move through the generations, first through the family, then through the church. And then again, he deposes, disposes and uh, appoints rulers in every season. Colossians 1 says this, by the way, this was read yesterday. If you watched the coronation of King Charles III, this was read by the prime minister of the UK. Pretty cool to read someone that doesn't, uh, uh, to hear someone that doesn't believe in Jesus and is appointed as a ruler reading this. The son, that's Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him, all things hold together. Here's the question, first question that I want to ask us this morning. Do you believe, do, do I really believe that God is in control, that he is the sovereign Lord of Lords? That no matter what may happen this side of heaven, he is still God. That's where we got to start. We got to start with that type of faith. Let me ask a follow-up question. Because sometimes out of those three institutions, family, church, and government, we want to control the one that we have least control and influence in. So my follow-up question is, um, are we influencing those around us that we can actually influence? Meaning... Are we paying attention to our families the way that we should? Are we paying attention to our church and serving our church the way that God's called us to? And, and, and then are we relating to our governing authorities the way that Scripture mandates us? The second is a consequence. Let's read here in verse 2 of Romans 
13. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. Uh Uh-oh. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For ruler, hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. Do you hear that? God's servant. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. The second point is this, the consequences follow rebellion. It's true in our homes, right? We set rules, and what happens when those rules aren't followed, mom and dad? Or if you, you know, remember when you were a kid, if you don't have kids, what happened? Then there were consequences for our actions. Same principle here. Government is instituted for order so that we can do what we have been called to by God, and that is proclaim and live out the gospel. All right. My submission folks are like, yes, you're saying it. And my subversion folks are like, here we go. When do we subvert? Do we always obey the government? No, no. What is the line? It's right here. When obeying the government means disobeying God. When, when, when the government is forcing, key word forcing us in a way where we would be disobeying God. All right, my, my subversion folks, I got eight clear examples in the Bible where this happened. Glad we're taking this with humor. Exodus 1, Hebrew midwives were uh, saved newborn. And, and, and Pharaoh's orders were to kill all the newborn boys because he wanted to uh, uh, prohibit the Jewish people from growing in number and influence. Esther 4, Esther enters the king's presence uninvited to intercede on behalf of her people. Daniel 3, the three amigos, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said no to bowing to Nebuchadnezzar's idol. And what happened? Furnace, what happened? God rescued them from the fire. Pretty cool. Daniel 6, Daniel defied the law by prohibiting, uh, or, or defied a law prohibiting prayer, and he prayed. Anyway, where did he end up? The lion's den. How did it go for him? Yay, God, he came through. Uh, Matthew 2, wise men defied Herod's order orders to report of this newborn king. Who's that? That's Jesus. And instead, the wise men said, this is, he's, he, this is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And so they went a different way. In Acts 4 and Acts 5, Peter and John boldly preached the gospel uh, when they were prohibited from doing so. And in Acts 5, Peter says, it is better to obey God than man. Acts 16, Paul refuses to leave prison when told to. Uh, he wanted to be brought out by the jailers themselves, and, and that happens. And in Revelation 13, this is in the end times, the church resists anti-God policies by persevering and by faithfulness. And so we see these clear instances where a governing ruler or authority was rebelled against. It takes great discernment, great clarity again, unless uh, the government is prohibiting us to do something that God has told us to obey, our, our, our position is to submit. Here, is, here are a couple of examples. In COVID, we weren't prohibited from not gathering together, right? In the state of Texas, we weren't. And so we, went, we met 
via the live stream for a while, and then as soon as we gathered enough information, do you remember those days? Oh boy. And we, we started meeting again in May. May 10th is when we started meeting again. More importantly, when this Paycheck Protection Program came about, remember that one? Where uh, churches could actually ask the government for funds to take care of the staff. Uh, we decided, as a leadership overseers, that we were not going to depend on God to take care of God's business. Because this is the job of the church, to provide and to further the gospel message. See, this church will not bow down to donkeys or elephants. We only bow to the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. That's what we're called to. That's what we're called to as believers. So do we blindly follow? No. There is something else that we are called to do because the reality is our government is loosening on calling evil what is actually evil and good. There's, there's some commotion going the other way. So what do we do? What do we do? It's found in 1 Timothy 2 where Paul is exhorting Timothy, Timothy to say, hey, first of all, what does he say? Pray. I urge that supplications, that prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Paul is telling Timothy, hey, if you want to see your community, your country, the world change, it starts with a changed heart. Then it goes to a changed family. And, and, and we pray for our leaders who don't know Jesus to come to know Jesus. We pray for revival so that the work of ministry can continue on. I have a word of exhortation. That, that's encouragement, but, but also a bit of rebuke for us because Thursday was our national day of prayer as a church family. Well, we didn't sign up for all 24 hours. There were still empty slots, and there were only 50 people here. I didn't count. Somebody else did on Thursday when we were praying, when we were asking God to bless our nation. Here's the question that I want to ask us. Are we praying more than we are complaining? If we are, then we're not obeying God. We're not giving in. We're not submitting to his plan, which is, hey, pray, trust me. I can do all things. I can appoint rulers. I can do what, you know, it's his will. We need to partner with him through prayer when we believe it. And when we don't, meaning when we believe that it's working and when we think, Lord, I'm praying, I don't really know what's going to change, but I'm going to choose to pray anyway. In fact, let's pray right now. Lord, we ask that you would bless this country, that you would bless our leaders. Lord, we pray from the top down, from President Biden all the way to Mayor Fulkerson here in Wimberley. Lord, we pray for wisdom. We pray, God, that you would show them your wisdom, just like the reverend from the Church of Scotland yesterday when he gave the Bible to King Charles and saying, this is the, the royal law, the real truth. Lord, we pray for godly wisdom. We pray for them, and we also, God, according to 1 Timothy 2, tells us we pray for revival. We pray for hearts to be 
changed, Lord. We pray that the evil in this country would, would be overcome by good. God, I ask specifically for peace from, from the victims of gun violence yesterday in Allen, Lord. We pray that you would show them your mercy and your healing, that, Lord, we would not see that continue, but we would see that stop because of this wave of revival that is happening in your name. Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. We have to pray. We have to pray. It's the most powerful weapon that we have. And when we don't pray is when we start getting distracted from our main mission, which is what Paul continues on in verse 5. He says, therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of Conscience. So he's saying, don't just obey the government so that you don't end up in jail. Uh, obey the government because this is a conviction that I want you to have. This is also why you pay taxes for the authorities or God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe them taxes, pay taxes of revenue, then revenue of respect, then respect of honor, then honor. Two things here. The first is this is the Roman way to participate in their Roman uh, government. So they had a totalitarian empire, right? We have a representative democracy. So for us in context, this means, hey, vote. Hey, run for office. Hey, go ahead and, and participate in our system so that we can see God's agenda move forward here in our land. We can do that before it is too late. And then it's starts being prohibitive, et cetera, et cetera. Do you understand what I'm saying? And, 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 but he's also saying, hey, don't go to jail for not doing your taxes. <laughs> he's saying, pay your taxes. Do, do these things. If you are to go to jail, go to jail because they're persecuting you. Go to jail because you're proclaiming the gospel of Jesus, and, and, and that is against the law. That's what he is saying here. And in verse 8, he gives us our mission. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever, lose, whoever loves others has fulfilled the law, the commandments. Here's four commandments from the Ten Commandments. You shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, and you shall not covet. Whatever other command there may be are all summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. This nation really held on to the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments at its founding. And here we have four of the five. Here's the key. Love is this Greek word agape. And so th this point is agape is our main mission. Agape can be defined by sacrificial love. Sacrificial love means giving something to someone that they don't already have. In this case, we are to give this world something that it may not want, but it desperately needs. Love for neighbor, free forgiveness. Grace is, or I'm sorry, mercy is getting what you don't deserve. So when you get pulled over and uh, you're guilty, but the police officer says, you're good. I give you a pass. That's mercy. You didn't get a ticket. Grace is getting something you don't deserve. So it's getting that ticket, and then the police officer handing you a $200 to pay for that ticket. You didn't deserve those $200, but he gave them to you anyway. That's the sacrificial love that we are to give this 
world as followers of Jesus. We need to care for those that can't give us anything. And, and scripture is clear that the church's mandate is to care for the vulnerable, just like we are in the summer food program, giving food to those who need it. So are orphanages and hospitals and schools, public education. Did you know that all of those are Christian ideals? Kind of hard to think of that now, but that's where these things came from. Because back then, if you were vulnerable, you were actually taking from the strong. You, you were bringing down society. Here, God is saying, no, 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 I'm going to care for the vulnerable through my people as they live out this agape sacrificial love. No better picture of this than Jeremiah 29. One of the most quoted passages is Jeremiah 29, verse 11, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Here's the context. Before, the people of God are in exile. They're foreigners in a new land. They are temporary residents in a foreign land. And this is what the Lord Almighty, Jeremiah 29, starting verse 4, the God of Israel says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, not overrule and overthrow the government, not take up arms, but what does it say? Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. That's following the creation mainly. That's the goodness of God that he's given us. He says, hey, have a family. Foster, uh, uh, cultivate a garden and, and foster a sense of home in this strange place. And then he says, also seek the peace and prosperity of the city, which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. Uh, here's, here's what they are. Sometimes we think, oh, see, there you go. You got to listen to the people that say that bad stuff is happening. No, no, no. Actually, these prophets were saying that good things were going to happen, that exile was going to be a short period. And Jeremiah says, this, this ain't prosperity, y'all. You're going to be here in verse 10. This is what the Lord says, 70 years. Don't listen to those that are saying this is going to be fast. Everything is okay. No, no, no. You're going to be here for 70 years. I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. The same is true for you and for me. Are we on this agape mission? Loving our families, loving our neighbors, reaching our country and our world. Are we seeing that in our lives? Question, do I love others the way that God has loved me? Think about that. How, is, how has God shown you love? Let's pass that on to others. And then Romans 13 closes with a... Quick word, and do this understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you too. Let's all say that together. Wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than we, when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put 
on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. What Paul is saying is, hey, time is short, so get ready. The time here on earth is short. Do you have somebody in your family that is always late? We do. She loves to get dolled up, and she's always, you know, I'm coming, I'm coming. We're all in the car honking. Just did that a couple days ago. <laughs> Come on, kid. It's not my wife. And <laughs> why, why do we do that? Because we're going to be late. We're going to be late. We got to hurry up. What Paul is saying here is we believers need to put on the armor of light, need, need to be clothed with the peace and the joy and the righteousness of Jesus Christ, because time is running out. See, the salvation that is drawing near is in three phases. The past salvation is that Jesus came once for all. He died one time. He rose again one time. That's the past. It is finished, he said uh, on the cross. The present is that anyone who confesses with their mouth and believes in their heart that Jesus Christ is Lord and has raised him from the dead will be saved. We can partner in his salvation story when we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior. That is the present. And then the future, that Jesus will come back. And he's saying the time is short because our lifespans have an end, an expiration date, but also because when Jesus comes back, if that happens before we pass away, he came to save the first time. The second time, Scripture says that he's coming to judge. And so we have to go and, and share. We have to go and live out what it looks like to follow Jesus to a lost and desperate world because when Jesus returns, it will be too late. And either they'll get in the car and go with us into eternity, or they'll be left behind. That's our mission. We need to get ready. How do you get ready in the morning? How, what are you putting on every morning? Is it Jesus? Are you starting your days on your knees? Or are you starting your days on Facebook? Scrolling and filling your mind with these thoughts and bitterness and anger and hatred and hostility that is brewing in our culture. Let this church be the former. Let us put on our armor of light. That's what Jesus did. He had two rulers that he subverted. Jesus was a subverter. Aren't, you, aren't we subverters glad that there's a subverter? Ultimately, he's our savior. Herod and Pontius Pilate, there was a Jewish leader and there was a Roman leader. Both gave him uh, an opportunity to confess and, and change, but Jesus submitted his life to them so that he can subvert the real enemy, and that is death for all of us, so that we can taste joy and peace and goodness forever. That's the love of our God. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for the mustard seeds and the yeast that is brewing here in this church family. We acknowledge that this is from you and of you, and we boldly ask for more, God. 
Lord, I pray for anyone in the house that has yet to say yes to Jesus, submitted their life to Jesus. Thanks that every Sunday we have an opportunity to do just that. And so if that's you, if something stirred your heart and you are now ready to surrender your life to Jesus, he's looking at your heart and he also wants you to confess it with your mouth. And so you can repeat a simple prayer after me and say, Jesus, I surrender to you. I receive this gift that I did not deserve. Thanks to your life, death, and resurrection, I say yes to you today and choose to live for you for the rest of my days.